We come now to the reading of God's Word. Uh, Let us hear the Word of the Lord from Psalm 84. To To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold, our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for we ask it in the name of your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. Well, Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 84, the pearl of Psalms, the pearl of Psalms, the sweetest of the Psalms of peace. And that's what we will look at this morning. C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Augustine said, O God, You made us for Yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. You made us for Yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. I think those two quotes by C.S. Lewis and Augustine capture the affectional pulse beat of the Christian life, longing for another world, longing for God. Different parts of the Bible bring this out in a vivid intense way. The pulse beat for heaven, for God, is always there in the Bible, but some parts 
it's more pronounced than others. It's a bit like our own pulse beat. When you run up the stairs to get something in the house and you feel your pulse, it's pumping more than normal. You've always got a pulse, but there are times when it's more intense and vivid. And that's like certain parts of the Bible. The longing for God, the longing for another world at points is more intense and more vivid. Just think of the Genesis account of the patriarchs. They all lived in tents. Abraham is called to leave his home, go to a country not his own, God's promised land. And when he gets there, what do we find him living in? A tent. And he never changes his abode. To the day he dies, Abraham lived in a tent. Same with Jacob and Esau. They both lived in tents. Here was this land of Edenic paradise, and none of the patriarchs ever put a spade in the ground. None of them ever built foundations. They only ever pitched tents. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 captures it well. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? Because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you see how the writer shows the patriarchs faith in action? They lived in tents. Why? Because they saw themselves as strangers, as pilgrims on this earth. And why did they view themselves like that? Because they were looking for another world, another city whose maker and builder was God. They lived loosely to this world, to this life. Just think of when Sarah dies and Abraham has to purchase the bit of land from the Hittites. What does he say? He says, I am a sojourner and a stranger among you. So can I please buy a piece of land to bury my wife? What's so shocking about that is Abraham, Abraham had been living for 62 years among them. And yet he said, I am a stranger among you and a sojourner. Jacob speaks the same way. When he arrives in Egypt and Pharaoh asks him his age, he replies, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130, 130 years of sojourning. Few and evil have been the days of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. For Jacob, his life and that of his fathers Isaac and Abraham was one long sojourn, one long pilgrimage. They were pilgrims in this world. They could have sung with Jim Reeves, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. They were homesick for heaven, homesick for God. They had desires in them that nothing in this world could satisfy. They were restless for God. The period of the patriarchs living in their tents is one of those parts of the Bible where the affectional pulse beat for heaven, for God, is pounding away in a vivid, intense way. In the New Testament, it's expressed in the life of our Lord. He was the Son of Man, born of Mary, into a normal family in Nazareth, but throughout His life, He never forgot that He was a son 
of heaven. During his earthly life, he had no home. He didn't even have a tent. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why? Because he was a son of heaven. And this, whole, this world was not his home. He was just a passing through. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And what was the joy before him? But to go to be with his Father in heaven, to sit at his right hand. The life of our Lord is one of those parts of the Bible where the affectional pulse beat for heaven is pounding away in a vivid, intense way. So, in the lives of the patriarchs, in the life of our Lord, we have this vivid, intense, affectional pulse beat for heaven, for God. Both of them show us that this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. But there's a third part of the Bible that shows us this affectional pulse beat for heaven, and it is the annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem the annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem. After Israel settled in the land, they didn't just live in tents, they built houses, and God told them to build houses, to settle in the land. But He gave them a reminder throughout the year that that land was not their home. Three times a year, the Jewish people would make their way up to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. It was a reminder that Canaan was not their home. There was something beyond Canaan. Every year there were these festivals held in Jerusalem, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost around Easter time, the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, although I don't think they call it the fall in Israel, at around harvest time. And in each case, the Israelites would travel from where they lived in Jerusalem up to the temple to make sacrifices, to pay their tithes and ultimately to meet with God in His temple. The journey was known as a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage to God in His temple. And Psalm 84 is set in the context of that pilgrimage. And as such, it is another moment in the Bible when the affectional pulse beat for heaven, for God, is pounding away because this psalm strips back all the pomp and ceremony of the feasts of the temple, all the fuss and fancy of the festivals at the temple, and it reveals a heart longing for heaven, longing for God. If this psalm does anything, it's this. It shows us that this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. The psalm orientates us beyond this world and shows us that the desires of our hearts show us that we were not made for this world, but for another world. Now, just an important footnote, when I say this world is not our home, I don't mean earth below is not our home and heaven above is. Uh, that's Platonism. That is just the division of physical and spiritual. No, when I say this world is not our home, I mean this age of this heavens and this earth is not our home. Our home is the new age of the new heavens and the new earth. So, with that qualification in mind, let me show you three ways in which this psalm 
pulses for heaven, how it pulses for God. First, a longing for God, verses 1 to 4, a longing for God. Now, as I read these verses again, keep in mind that God's temple in Jerusalem was a picture of heaven where God lives. And when you keep that picture in mind, you'll see how this psalm reveals a longing for heaven and a longing for God. O Lord, God, sorry, uh, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The word lovely here does not mean that God's dwelling place is lovely looking. I'm sure it is. But if that's what the psalmist meant, it's a bit strange that he doesn't go on to describe what God's dwelling place looks like. There are no descriptions in this psalm of what this place looks like, of what the temple looks like. The word lovely here rather means something more like lovable. How lovable is your dwelling place? Or how I love your dwelling place. And the psalmist's love for God's dwelling place is seen in his intense longing for it. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Two opposite descriptions describing this one intense longing. He faints for it. The blood rushes from his body in a kind of craving for the place. Like when you're so ravenous for food, you can't even think of anything else but food. It's the first way he describes his longing. And then he gives it this opposite expression. His heart and flesh, his whole person, sing for joy. Now the blood rushes back, if you like, because you can't sing if you're feeling faint. So the psalmist describes in two opposite physical experiences of fainting and singing this one intense longing for the dwelling place of God. How much does he love God's dwelling place? He faints for it. He sings for it. God and his temple are his one consuming passion. So much so that he expresses envy at those who get to live there permanently in verse 3 and 4. He's envious of the sparrow who gets to find a home in the arches of the roof. He's envious of the swallow who makes her nest in the eaves of the temple. She gets to have her young near his altars. The birds have easy, free access to God's house. They come and go as they please. Boys and girls, if you've ever been on a farm, and you look up in the barn on the farm, what do you see flying in and out of the barn? The sparrows, the swallows. Do you ever see the farmer telling them they can't go into the barn? No, they can go in and out of the barn whenever they want. And that's what this psalmist sees. He sees the swallows and the sparrows coming into God's temple whenever they want, with no restriction. And he longs for that kind of experience. He has to make his pilgrimage to get to God's temple, and then he has to leave again after a while for months at a time. 
which brings him to the other group of people that he's envious of. He's envious of the sparrows and the swallows, but he's also envious of those who live in the temple, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers. He's envious of them because they get to live in God's house and sing His praises continually. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Now, this envy, it's not a bad envy. It's a good envy because He calls these people blessed. The blessed life is the life lived in the courts of God, singing His praises. I've been reflecting on this recently because two years ago we uh, lost um, <clears throat> a daughter, Layla, L-E-I-L-A, Layla Judith Grace. One Sunday night when I went to preach on hell um, at full term in the womb, she prepared for heaven. And when our loved ones in Christ depart from us, we often wish they would come back to us, even just for a day. But think about what we'd be asking of them. We'd be asking them to leave the courts of the Lord of hosts, to leave their home in heaven where they praise God continually. Why would we want them to have to do that? The psalmist doesn't want the sparrows or swallows confiscated from the temple. He doesn't want them to come and live with him in his house in the countryside. He wants to go and live where they live. The psalmist doesn't want the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers to be confiscated from the temple and come and live where he lives. No, he wants to go and live where they live. He longs for God's dwelling place, for heaven. Samuel Rutherford once wrote to a mother who lost her child and said, today the Lord has cut off one of your branches so that you may grow higher and closer towards heaven. Life is not about those who have gone before us coming back to us. It's about us going to them. Because blessed are those who dwell in God's house ever singing His praises. It's about us going to them, not them coming to us. Just as King David said when his son died in infancy on the seventh day of his life, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. Cancer or old age or some terrible news of a death of a loved one is a great recalibration for the desires of our hearts they are circumstances that God brings into our lives to make us long for heaven, for another world. That's what this psalm does for us. It recalibrates our longing for heaven, but not just for heaven. C.S. Lewis once said, heaven is Oxford lifted up and placed in the middle of County Down, Northern Ireland. Now, as you can hear from my accent, I'm from County Down, Northern Ireland. C.S. Lewis was a genius. <laughs> but like all geniuses, he had his blind spots. He got the right country and the right county, but he got the wrong university. should have said Cambridge is 
lifted up and placed in County Down, Northern Ireland. But as a fellow Ulster man, I will forgive him for that. But notice what Lewis was saying. Heaven is not just a beautiful place like County Down, Northern Ireland. For Lewis, heaven is a beautiful place because it is an inhabited place. When he spoke about Oxford being lifted up and placed in County Down, he was speaking about Oxford, the university city, with the students and the professors and the town folk and the libraries and the culture. Lewis was saying that heaven is about the people as much as the place. And that's what this psalmist shows us. Heaven is, not, is only heaven because of who lives there. Heaven is a beautiful place because it is inhabited by a beautiful person, God Himself. Heaven is about the person, not just the place. That's why the psalmist finds heaven so lovable because of who resides there. Notice how he refers to God, the Lord of hosts, the living God, His King and His God, the God of Jacob. Do you notice how dominant the references to God are in this psalm? There are about 14 or 15 references to God in this psalm with a bunch of different titles. That's more than one reference per verse. In contrast, there are only six references to God's dwelling place. See, this psalmist is not so much longing for heaven as he is longing for the God of heaven. Because heaven is only heaven because of who lives there. Heaven is only heaven because the Lord of hosts dwells in heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was dying of cancer, was asked once, Doctor, shall we pray for you to be healed? And Martin Lloyd-Jones replied, don't hold me back from the glory. He was about to go and see God face to face. <laughs> Why would you pray for him to be healed in terminal cancer? He's about to see God. And isn't that where we're all heading? That's the first thing this psalm shows us, a longing for God. Second, a journeying to God, verses 5 to 8, a journeying to God. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, the pilgrimages to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Notice how the last stanza finished before the Selah in verse 4. Blessed are those who live in God's house, ever singing His praise. And now this second stanza begins with another statement of those who are blessed. Blessed are those whose strength is in God, who have pilgrimage in their hearts. That's what highways literally means. The pilgrimage is up to Jerusalem. So, blessed are those uh, who are not just restricted from living permanently in God's temple, but blessed are those who make their pilgrimage to God's temple. In other words, blessed are those who are in heaven already, 
and blessed are those who have the journey to heaven fixed in their hearts now. Blessed are those who live like the patriarchs. Blessed are those who live like our Lord, who live loosely to this world and longingly for another world. Blessed are those who sing, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Because if we do live like this, then we can experience joy even in the midst of difficulties and tears. Verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. We're not exactly sure where this valley is, but commentators think Baca refers to balsam trees, which were in the valley of Rephaim, uh, southwest of Jerusalem. It was the one pilgrim route for those in the south that involved walking through a valley. It was perhaps the most difficult route to Jerusalem because the valley had been dry in the autumn for the Feast of Tabernacles, and there was danger because it was close to the Philistines. But more than that, Baca sounds exactly like the Hebrew word for weeping. This is the valley of weeping. Perhaps the balsam trees wept their gum. That's why Isaac Watts and John Light's versions of Psalm 84 have a veil of tears. Yet the psalmist says that those who go into this veil of tears with their strength firmly rooted in God, with pilgrimage in their hearts, they can turn a dry place into a place of springs. In other words, their lives become a blessing to those who journey with them. Have you ever heard the saying, so-and-so is so heavenly-minded they're of no earthly use? Yeah? It's a load of nonsense. It's a load of absolute nonsense. Those who are so heavenly-minded are of great earthly use. They bring us comfort along the way. They point us to another world. It's what my daughter Layla did. We call her Layla the Evangelist. She pointed us to another world. I have a friend, Sam, who has crippled with the affection of uh, GVH. He had leukemia, was healed by it, but his uh, graft versus host disease has crippled his body. He's on a hundred tablets a day. He is bald. His eyelashes have fallen out. He has chapped lips. He has to wear cling film on his feet because his skin uh, is so cut and bruised when he walks that anything can cut his feet so easily. He is a walking Job. And when I'm with Sam, we often just sit there and cry, but he refreshes my soul. He reminds me that this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. He lifts my eyes to God and to the world to come. And that's the point. The destiny of our earthly pilgrimage is not to a place, but to a person, to God. <clears throat> Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Life is about journeying towards God. 
It's interesting that in the second stanza, all mention of God's dwelling place is absent. The psalmist is now focused on God, journeying to God. That's the destiny of our pilgrimage. It's what the psalmist longs for. It's what he prays for in verse 8. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Bring me to Yourself, for my heart is restless until it finds my rest in You. We've seen a longing for God, a journeying to God, and then third, a prayer to reach God, verses 9 to 12. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of Your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. A prayer to reach God. But it's interesting that verse 9 is even there in the first place, because it's rather out of place. If you read verse 8 and 10 together, it reads very smoothly, O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. What is verse 9 doing in there? Seems to interrupt the flow of the psalm, doesn't it? Well, it's a reference to God's king, to Israel's king, a shield is a metaphor for Israel's king. Anointed one is a title for Israel's king. So it's a prayer for God's king. But that still doesn't solve the problem. What has God's king got to do with God's people getting to God's dwelling place? Well, everything, actually. Because the prosperity of God's people, the protection of God's temple in Zion, was dependent on the prosperity of Israel's king. If God's king was disobedient, then God's curse fell on king and people and on temple. And if God's curse fell on them, then they became vulnerable to surrounding nations. Just think ahead to the exile when Judah went into exile. It was because their kings fell into the sin of idolatry, and God brought the nations in, and they ransacked the temple. So God's people no longer had access to God or to His house, because God's King had no longer found favor in the eyes of God. And that's why the psalmist prays that God might behold the King and look with favor on the face of His anointed King, because he knows that if the King doesn't prosper, he ain't getting to the temple. And it's the same for us. If Jesus Christ, our King, had not prospered, then we would have no access to God. It's what our first Bible reading this morning said. Jesus said, in my house, in my Father's house, are many mansions. He speaks about the world to come. And how do we get there? No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We were and are dependent on the Father looking upon His anointed Son in favor at His work so that we might get to heaven. And when He died, 
what tore in two? The curtain of the temple. Access to God was opened through God looking with favor on His anointed Son. And this psalmist knows that if the king doesn't prosper, access to the place he loves will become closed. We see this, and, and access to the God he loves become closed, because we see this in verse 10 and 11. Notice the two fours. Look with favor on your anointed king, for because a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. These two comparisons highlight how, God's great, uh, how great God's place is. A day in God's courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. That's one day to three years. Being on the edge of God's house, on the threshold, is better than living as a doorkeeper in the tents of wickedness with all its seeming pleasures. This is why the psalmist prays for God's favor on the king, so he can keep having access to God's place. It's not just the place, it's the person he wants access to. That's why there's this other sentence in verse 11, beginning with a four. He says it would be better uh, to be a doorkeeper than dwell in the tents of wickedness, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. God's courts are incomparable because God is there, and God is a sun and a shield. The sun is a picture of life and light. The shield, a picture of protection. God is our life. God is our light. God is our protection. And look what He gives, grace and glory, favor and honor, and He doesn't withhold any good thing. In the historical context of this psalm, that would be material blessings of a good harvest, um, but such blessing was dependent on the people's obedience. Deuteronomy 28 said that a, God had said if they obey, they would be blessed material, which is what He says here, for those who walk uprightly. The question is, what are these good things that He promises? No good thing does He withhold. Is it a spice? Is it children? Is it a job promotion? Is it the right house? Is it having our children married off? Well, all of those things are good, chil are good things, but I don't think that's what's being promised here, because what do you do when God takes your child? No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly? No, the good thing is being with God in His courts. That is the good thing that God does not withhold from us if we are walking uprightly. God does not withhold Himself from us. John Piper has said, God is the gospel. What we get in the gospel are not benefits. We do, but we first get the benefactor. We first get God. We cannot get grace and glory and good things without the God of such things, because grace, glory, and good things don't exist apart from God. We get God. That is the good thing that God does not withhold from us. And so, when we pray for God to look with favor on His anointed King, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we end our prayers for the sake of Your Son, that's what we're praying. Look with favor on us 
and bring us to your heavenly temple. I started today with two quotes, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. O God, You made us for Yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. May I finish with a final quote by John Calvin, the Psalms, that's how you pronounce it in Hebrew, The Psalms are a mirror to our souls. That's why we identify with the Psalms so much, the longings, the struggles, the sin, the heartache. They are a mirror to our souls. Well, as this Psalm is held up before us this morning, what does it reveal? Does your heart reflect this longing? Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, but you're starting to feel those inklings for eternity, because this Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in our hearts. We were made for another world. And if you are a Christian this morning, may this psalm be a challenge to us to reorientate our hearts, to recalibrate our desires, not for this world, but for the world to come, because this world's not our home. We're just a passing through Let us live like the patriarchs. Let us live like our Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before Him longed to be with His Father in heaven. Let us pray. Father, You are the Father of all delights. You are the foundation and fountain of all being and all beauty. In You all things exist through You all things hold together, and for You all things exist for Your glory. We pray that You would please recalibrate our hearts and our desires for You and for the life of the world to come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.